Welcome to Chatsunami. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Chatsunami. My name's Satsunami and joining me to discuss all things game collecting is none other than the one and only, I was about to call you the prodigal son because you've returned <laughs> once again. Yes, I have. Yeah, is the one and only Super Shadow 271 It's me. After all this time of me hopping into your stream going, yeah, I'll get you back for an episode, I'll get yeah. you back. But yeah, how are you doing tonight, Shadow? I'm doing really well. I actually just posted a new stream highlight video, so I'm I'm really happy. I have to say, I did flick through that before we came on tonight, and you did a great job. I'm not just saying Thank that. Thank you. Speaking of streaming and, of course, video games, this is my very clumsy segue. <laughs> Basically introducing what we're going to be talking about today, because you and I, of course, are avid gamers. Mm-hmm. Spoilers for the episodes, you know. I'm, I'm sorry you had to find out this way, Shadow. Oh, no. You thought we were going to talk about the DLC of Sonic Frontiers tonight, no? I- I, I was going to be I had a whole essay prepared <laughs> you had an H-bomber video ready to go yeah yeah exactly but today we're going to talk about the hobby side of video games and of course you might be thinking well what do you mean by that Satsu because obviously you know it is a hobby in itself but there are quite a few sub hobbies within gaming and the one we're going to be honing in on today because there's been a lot of conversation about this it is indeed game collecting which I have have to say, see when you were younger, Shadow, because I'm going to mm-hmm. put this on to you first, but see when you were younger, did you really notice a lot of game collecting going around when you were growing up? Or was it more when you got older? Because I know it definitely still went on to an extent, but did you really notice it? Not when I was younger. Granted, though, when I was younger, the internet didn't really exist, so I had no way of engaging with a wider group of people. So as far as I could tell, it was only a matter of if your parents were willing to buy you a certain amount of games. But there were always people who I knew had more games than me, so I knew it was something that varied person to person, but it wasn't really until I got old enough that I started to understand that like hey people are interested in all sorts of games and like there's a whole complicated history and people collect them. I have to admit when I was younger and obviously this is a maturity thing right enough but I always just saw games as you know you take them out the box you play them as sounds like <laughs> such an old person thing to say to be like <laughs> video games are for playing damn it but you looked at them as obviously a pastime but nowadays and don't get me wrong when I say nowadays I don't mean over the past week or so yeah, this has been going on for years and years. It's more apparent whether you go into a retro gaming store, whether you go into Comic-Con and they've got the aisle of retro games. And I, I said that with such disdain because the last <laughs> time I went to quote-unquote retro game aisle in a convention yeah they had 360 games and uh, Wii games even though they're from like 2006 onwards I wasn't happy <laughs> I honestly I get what you're saying but I do consider them retro at this point I think nowadays as much as I loathe to admit it they're probably on the precipice of going into retro whereas I think when I first saw them this was definitely before the 2020s anyway like long before I remember going into a room and they were like oh look it's retro games 
gaming. <laughs> they had a N64, they had the NES. You think, okay, okay, this is retro. And then they had the 360 in the corner and you were like, no, no. Halo <laughs> 3, not retro. Get that out of here. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen people say how the Wii and 360 are older now than, I think it was the SNES when the Wii and 360 like launched. So I think it's fair to call them retro because mm. we considered those retro back in the day. But speaking of collecting though, is it safe to assume that you've gotten into the hobby as well? Oh, absolutely. I might have a little bit of a problem. <laughs> I was going to say, thank God, because otherwise I was thinking, oh, I've brought the wrong guest on situation. <laughs> <laughs> no, believe me, you've brought the very right guest on here. I have a spreadsheet of all my games and uh, my total as far as i can tell in terms of physical games is around 2800 across all the generations oh wow yeah and uh if we were including digital it would probably be well over 10,000 copies of games and out of curiosity what got you into game collecting well there's no one thing i can point to because i've always been a collector in some way i originally collected Yu-Gi-Oh cards when i was really big into Yu-Gi-Oh, and i've just always been a collector i only really started to collect video games when I went to a garage sale that was like across the street from me and this woman collected video games or at least she just had a lot of video games herself and we were talking about video games and you know she could tell that I was passionate about them so she was like hey I'm moving I forget exactly where but I'm moving far away and I can't take all these video games with me by the end of the day if I don't sell these you can just take them so she ended up giving me hundreds of games then I was like well I guess I'm just gonna to start collecting video games and I just never stopped. I'm not being funny but that's the start of every creepy pasta about video games. <laughs> I've seen random women says I'll give you this special game realistic <laughs> blood. <laughs> yeah I was digging through all the copies and I found this cartridge labeled sonic.exe and we'll never know what that's all about. <laughs> yeah yeah I decided to throw it away so oh, I'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say though in terms of collecting myself I'm definitely not as thorough in that regard but I have collected a few games along the line and mm. I have to say I almost feel as if if you get into gaming very early on so for example when I was younger my brothers had the Mega Drive and the NES respectively and of course I've technically some may say stealing I call it inheriting <laughs> old consoles and games so I've got those old consoles I've also got my very own ones like with the N64 with the old Pokemon Game Boy games as yes. well as the different Game Boys that I've collected over the years. As you said, either through car boot sales, garage sales and yeah you almost become a passive collector if you buy physical games because it's something that I have to admit I was looking at a lot of my old games the other day and you look at them and you think it's crazy to think that nowadays obviously they're not really sold anymore they're more either you know, in these second-hand shops, they're in collector shops, or worst comes to the worst, they are hopefully digitized <laughs> and available yeah. for download, which is definitely a big thing we're going to be diving into in this episode. But it is interesting to see that if you are a gamer and you have all these physical games, then by proxy, I suppose, you do have these different games. Because I remember years and years ago when I was still in university, I just by chance bought the 
Gears of War games. And I can't remember if I ever told you this before, where I ended up going in and one of my old Fallout mates was like, oh, you should buy Gears of War 1 and 2. You know, it was like a two-for-one sale back when games were cheap and they sold pre-owned games. That's going to date the episode. But yeah, there was a two-for-one deal and I thought, you know what, I'll get both of them. And the woman behind the counter was like, oh, I'll give you the special edition for the second game, which came with the art book. And I thought, wow, fantastic, I'll take that. And I ended up getting the special edition for the third game, which comes with the flag, the mini metal cog and things. So I've got some collector's editions or limited editions, but I wouldn't say, unless it's a game that I'm really into or I think the reward is very good, then I wouldn't say I would go out my way to, you know, buy it. Honestly, unless you are as passionate about gaming and gaming history as I am, it's kind of hard to recommend being a collector because it's very, very pricey and there's quite a rabbit hole you can go down. In terms of collector's editions, I guess I've got a few, but I wouldn't say they're really all that necessary. The only thing that I would really insist on is a lot of them do come with the soundtrack, so if you really like the soundtrack, that is an official way to have the soundtrack, but especially with games being digital more and more nowadays, it's harder and harder to even just find a physical copy of a game, let alone a collector's edition. And that is indeed the perfect jumping off point to dive into the episode. <laughs> you did a better job yes. than me starting off this episode. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, but you did a good job. Don't worry, I'll give you my PayPal details later. My PayPal people will talk with your PayPal people, you know, we'll, we'll get <laughs> yes. something. We'll get something. Sorted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, let's jump into this, and indeed, we will be right back after these messages. Welcome to Shatsunami, a variety podcast that discusses topics from gaming and films to anime and general interests. Previously on Chatsunami, we've analysed what makes a good horror game, conducted a retrospective on Pierce Brosnan's runs James Bond, and listened to us take deep dives into both the Sonic and Halo franchises. Also, if you're an anime fan, then don't forget to check us out on our sub-series, Chatsunani, where we dive into the world of anime. So far, we've reviewed things like Death Note, Princess Mononoke, and the hit Beyblade series. If that sounds like your cup of tea, then you can check us out on Spotify, iTunes, and all good podcast apps. As always, stay safe, stay awesome, and most importantly, stay hydrated. Hi, I'm SuperShadow271. You can find me over on Twitch, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and even Discord. I play and talk about a huge variety of games, so there's bound to be something you're interested in, especially if you're a Sonic fan. My content tries to be chill with some insightful commentary on games, so if you're interested, please check me out. Thank you so much for listening, and let's get back to Chatsunami. Let's talk game collecting, and I just want to go back to something you said in the intro there when you were talking about this being a very expensive hobby. I have to admit, I 100% agree with you. I was in, I think it was Acme Comic Con. Big shout out to Acme Comic Con in Glasgow. There was a guy there who was selling all of his, well, I say all of his, you know, his hoard of games he had in a big plastic <laughs> yeah. bucket in front of him. And, you know, he was selling all of these, like, really pristine games. And I remember thinking, oh, they've got Dreamcast games. I wonder if I should get a copy of Sonic Adventure 2 because I have a copy of of the first one, well, my brother had, so again, inherited, not stolen, for legal <laughs> yes, reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I thought, oh, I'll get a copy of it, you know, just for old time's sake, I'll get a copy of Sonic Adventure 2. £60. It was yes. £60. It was, I, I just looked and I went, not today, Satsu. I'm not a rich <laughs> podcaster. I can't afford <laughs> 
<laughs> you put it down and you think it does seem a bit excessive. Yeah, unfortunately, that's just the nature of a lot of this stuff because I can't remember where it was posted, but there was a report saying that 85 or so percent of all games sold from like five years ago or earlier just aren't available anymore. And that is a really, really sad number when you think about preservation, but it also means that secondhand copies end up becoming much more valuable because they're the only legal way to acquire the game and it just ends up becoming a a money sink. There are ways to mitigate it, but at some point you just need to know this is a very expensive thing to get into. And if you're not passionate about it, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, because you're just going to end up with a stack of plastic covers and you're just like, wow, (laughs) (laughs) this means nothing to me. (laughs) Yeah, I had a, a friend who would occasionally want to be a collector and he'd go out and he'd buy a bunch of things. But since he wasn't really passionate about it, he'd grow bored of it and then he'd just sell it to me, which on the one hand, I mean, I was happy to get stuff. But on the other hand, it illustrated to me why you don't become a collector unless you are truly passionate about what you're buying. You don't have that emotional attachment, you know? I was going to ask, but out of curiosity, what's the line for you between collecting something just because it's rare versus collecting something for the nostalgic value? It's a thin line. Can't say I have a great definition, but I think my definition would roughly say somewhere that if you are buying something that genuinely like excites you, that you actually connect with, I would interpret that as a more genuine like collecting versus, oh, this game is worth this much, so I should acquire it. But you don't have that same emotional connection to it, and that just becomes essentially scalping. It's a gray area for sure. Yeah, because I have to say, I think one of the more infamous examples of that is anything to do with Nintendo. Oh, yeah. Because we have a shop in the UK. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's called CEX. Oh, yes. I'm calling it that because I know the way they want me to say it. (laughs) And for legal reasons and, you know, for the kids listening to this, (laughs) I'm not going to say it that way. But they, of course, have a horde of like different retro hardware, different retro video games, DVDs and the like. Ironically enough, I got my copy of, I think it was a limited edition for Gears of War 1 from there. So half a shout out to them because I do have a point here. But yeah, I remember going in once and I have to admit, I have bought Pokemon games from them before, you know, and while they're not the best price, sometimes they're not too bad, you know, the kind of range in the 30s to 40s with Pokemon Sun and Moon. I think they're, funny enough, they're like £15. No idea why it's so cheap. But if you look at certain other games for the Pokemon franchise, oh my god, you need a second mortgage for these games. Seriously. Oh, there's ones like Pokemon Art Gold and Soul Silver. Oh yeah. Oof. Two of my absolute favourite ones. And you would be paying about 80 odd pounds just for a copy of it. It is ridiculous. But what's even worse, and this is where I throw down the hammer here, is you know the spin-off games, Pokemon Coliseum. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Pokemon Gale of Darkness. Pokemon Gale of Darkness is X. Ex- <laughs> It is around £200. Yeah, all the GameCube ones are really expensive. Oh, it's ridiculous. 
ridiculous prices. Yeah, it's the whole Nintendo tax, I have to admit. Nintendo games really don't depreciate in value, do they? Yeah, they really don't. Nintendo's a very strange case. Because games are inherently a luxury product. You don't need them to live, so... Well, well, hold on now. (laughs) Oh, well, okay. (laughs) Mostly you don't need them to live. When you're talking about old games, you want to get the ones you enjoy, and that, I think, most often is Nintendo, so I think they hold their value because they're just timeless in a lot of ways. It's frustrating when you want to get into them, but it also makes sense from a supply and demand perspective because there is basically always a demand for Nintendo games. As you said, it's a bit of a special case here, and I don't want to, you know, just dogpile on Nintendo because trust me, we'll get onto <laughs> the other companies soon, cracking their knuckles yeah, being like, yeah. you'll get your turn. But with Nintendo, I suppose they've mastered the art of scarcity. As you said, the causation between supply and demand where loads of people are wanting a product but Nintendo for some reason are very good at marketing getting people to want the product and the thing is for the example of Pokemon even if Pokemon games have decreased in quality over the years people will still buy it to see how bad it is or you know they'll just buy it out nostalgia sake they'll buy it because of x y and z the main thing is that they're getting that revenue so when they decide oh we're going to move on to the next generation of this particular franchise then the original one gets left behind something that partly inspired this episode as well is that idea of companies moving from the physical realm to a more digitized space and in particular with nintendo if i remember correctly they have decided that they're going to start cutting off the online services for the wii u and 3 DS games, which on the one hand you can kind of understand why they're limiting that because they probably want their resources towards something a bit more, you know, contemporary (laughs) and modern as it were. But on the flip side of that, and it's quite sad looking at this from a retro gaming perspective because at least in terms of Pokemon, and I know I keep using this (laughs) example, but last one I swear, I actually remember years and years ago they decided to bring out quite a lot of the old games on to the 3DS store so they had Pokemon Red, Blue, Yellow and then they had Silver, Gold and Crystal and then one day they said oh yeah we're shutting up shop so you can no longer buy these games so it pushes a lot of people who really want to play this but can't into less scrupulous (laughs) means as it were you know not advocating for it Nintendo lawyers please (laughs) don't kill me refer to a Red Panda lawyer but it's that kind of idea that because they've shut that down and then they've not provided an alternative. Nintendo aren't the only ones, are they? They're maybe the most prominent, but there's definitely a lot of that in basically every aspect of the gaming industry. Because as we were talking about there, there seems to be this desire to either scarcify certain editions or, you know, have a limited run of something, or worst case scenario, decide whether or not the consumer, or by extension the gamer, can play their game or not. Because I remember one of the earlier examples I can think off off the top of my head was Deadpool. Do you remember this? Oh, I do remember, yeah. I mean, God, that must have been, I can't remember when they did this, but it must Mm -hmm. have been years ago. It was something to do with publishing rights, wasn't it? Yes. And then they took it off Steam, they had to take it off Xbox and things, which essentially meant that unless you had bought the game and downloaded it, you no longer had access to that game. It's funny you mentioned that. If I remember, that was roughly when Marvel was acquired by Disney, so they were trying to 
like renegotiate all their licenses and things. More so than Deadpool, I actually think a good example of this is Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. There was like a, an arcade beat-em-up Scott Pilgrim vs. the World game that came out on PS3 and Xbox 360 many years ago, and people said it was good, but for whatever legal reason, they had to not only take it off of storefronts, but you weren't even allowed to re-download it if you paid for it. It was a really big deal because a lot of people were burned, and for many years, they hounded Ubisoft and the creator of Scott Pilgrim and whoever else they could to get the game physically because it was only a digital download, so the only way to play it was through less legal methods. So eventually, Ubisoft acquiesced and managed to re-release the game with like all the DLC and they made physical copies and everyone was roughly happy, but I think a point that gets glossed over in that story that really upsets me is that they didn't reinstate all the people who had originally paid for the game, they just got the license to sell a new version of it. You were still out the game either way, it's just now you had the opportunity to buy it legally, and it was a really important lesson to me about how having a physical copy will ultimately always be preferable for me than buying a game digitally. No, I totally agree with you, because the more infamous example of that as well was Silent, was it PT, Silent Hill? Oh yes, PT. Yeah, PT. Pour one out for PT. It's funny (laughs) how it became one of the most important horror experiences in basically the last decade or two, and yet nobody could play it. Yeah, people still talk about it to this day. When you think of video games getting taken off the marketplace, PT is usually the one that people go to, because I actually remember when it came out, everyone downloaded it. At the time, I didn't have a PlayStation. Loads of people bought it, and then as soon as they said, oh no, due to whatever it was, it was something to do with licensing and the arguments between, you know, developers and they were like, nah, we're going to take this down. And then people were selling their PlayStations for a ridiculous amount of money, like thousands of pounds on eBay, just, oh yeah, buy it. It's got PT on it. That's just crazy. I think it was a couple years ago, maybe two years. They introduced an update for it. So that way, even if you kept that PS4 that had PT on it, if you kept it connected to the internet, it would download this update and make it unplayable. So yeah, so now the PS4s that have PT are even rarer because now they can't be connected to the internet lest they get killed by the update. That is absolutely insane though. Yeah, it's really amazing the amount of scorn Konami had for that game. That's not even letting people just enjoy the experience and say, oh well, we released the game, things went wrong, let's just leave it alone. That is just messing with people's experience. Oh, absolutely. Funny enough, I was reading an article the other day, I want to say it was Eurogamer or something, I could be wrong, but they were saying that PlayStation users had, I think it was a notification message saying that PlayStation essentially reserved the right to remove content off of the console, and it was something to do with Discovery, I think they said. Oh yes, yeah, the Discovery situation is also really awful. It's just, it's crazy to think that if you're actively pursuing this hobby, and again, you know, I want to emphasise, as you said at the beginning of the episode, this isn't a thing that I'm doing a Hail Mary here before I say this. (laughs) It's not a necessity to live video games, but it's so weird how, you know, years and years ago, you went out, you bought a game, that was it. And as you said, if you bought a physical version, nobody, unless 
you know, Nintendo ninjas kick down <laughs> your doors and physically rip it out of your hands, you know, they can't take that from you. Yeah. Nowadays, it's becoming very, very precarious for, I feel as if both collectors and gamers as a whole, and the latest one that really lit a fire under my backside was the Spec Ops situation. Oh, yes, that makes me so sad. I love Spec Ops. Oh, me too. I was furious, and for any listeners out there, yeah, I will be doing an episode on it at some point. <laughs> oh, it is such a good game. I only played it, I want to say, last year or the year before. I was really late to the train, I have to say. <laughs> I'm one of these patient gamers. I mean, I was saying to you before we came on tonight, <laughs> I've only just started playing the whole Mass Effect trilogy. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Why I didn't play it sooner, I don't yep. know why. <laughs> yeah. The fact is that with Spec Ops, Spec Ops is just such an important game. Whether you're playing it as just, you know, a mindless shooter or you actually pay attention to the narrative because it is so, so important in the gaming landscape and yet... It's just gone now, right? Yeah. It's just, you can't get it anymore unless you pay a scalper. <laughs> How bad is that problem? I know scalpers exist and they are a scourge in gaming. It's obviously the same with when gaming events have these different events and things and they have like a special card you can get or a special something and then scalpers buy it by the thousands or the hundreds yep. just to sell it on for an exorbitant amount. Yes. See in the collector sphere is it more shunned by collectors or do you think that behaviours, I don't want to say encouraged because I don't want to put the blame on the people buying it but would you say it's a problem? It's definitely a problem especially because of the pandemic prices for video games absolutely skyrocketed because suddenly scalpers were like hey this is an entertainment you can have at home and suddenly everybody wants it so I'm gonna crank up the price. As someone who's really passionate about video games I don't want to encourage this kind of scalping but I do see that a lot of more casual type collectors don't mind paying a scalper for such things. It's a really weird issue. I'm sure for some people yeah I'm paying more for this but like hey I get this thing now where I tend to approach it as like this game really is not worth this price to me. You know I, I know what I can roughly expect from it so I don't think it's worth more than this. It's different for everyone really. Do you think though that companies and again not directing it in Nintendo although they are part of the pool you know you could levy this against Sony for originally making fun of Xbox for not being backwards compatible and then they themselves weren't backwards compatible yes. until much later and then vice versa. So all of these gaming companies are in the same pot here but oversimplifying here but would you say that companies and in particular gaming companies in action to provide an alternative for a source of these games is damaging the collector sphere as it were? I would say that the collector sphere is kind of the only market for such things so I wouldn't say that it would necessarily damage it. Yeah I just mean more in terms of like as we were talking about before with older games that are still related to relevant games for example Pokemon, I know I said I wouldn't mention it, but <laughs> bringing it back. But you know, like Pokemon, people said a couple of years ago, oh, I can download it from the 3DS store and I can play it on my 3DS. And now Nintendo haven't really given people an option beyond either having the physical game or by downloading it onto the 3DS before that change took effect. So it feels as if because they are not providing an alternative, again, it's the same with their N64 
64 games or I mean god forbid for some of the regional exclusive games like especially for yes. Sony for the PlayStation and Nintendo as well it feels as if it's not the case for all of them but it does feel as if for the ones that feel as if they're in reach they could easily port them over but for whatever reason whether they just think it's not worth it yeah because it, it just seems quite a odd decision and obviously they're not you know rubbing their hands in a shadowy room going haha the price of the collector's edition has gone sky high invest but <laughs> yeah it just it, it seems like a weird decision on their part even not digitizing them because i know nintendo have technically started that and so have other companies but yeah it just seems weird yeah it's funny you bring up playstation because i believe it was the ceo of playstation i can't remember exactly who but one of the higher ups at playstation said that backwards compatibility is a feature that's often requested but rarely used and uh, i think that's just how a lot of companies view these sorts of requests as much as people say they want it it's rare that it'll actually have any sort of huge market share it's just something people want it's funny to think about that because in gaming history a big part of why the atari 5200 didn't do as well as the atari 2600 is because it wasn't backwards compatible people who bought and invested a lot into their atari 2600 collection didn't want to just abandon all that for a console that didn't really offer that much in that sense backwards compatibility was a big deal and like i think sometimes companies will understand that people invested a lot in the previous platform so we should do something to help them transition to the new one but in terms of just backwards compatibility and accessibility it's a complicated issue because it is a somewhat niche audience that will want this sort of thing obviously when gaming was i wouldn't say in its infancy because you know we had the 80s we had the 90s i'm not that old i wasn't born in the 80s i just want to throw (laughs) that out there i'm not that old but you know we had the 80s we had the 90s it felt as if gaming as a whole was built on innovation they wanted to have the better graphics they wanted to have the more fun ips and then of course when they moved on to the next games obviously for the n64 to the gamecube they couldn't really transfer although they did have some games that they transferred over in some aspects the one i'm thinking of is the is it the anniversary edition of zelda they had ocarina of time on oh yeah the master quest Mm -hmm. that's the one yeah as the games went on there definitely was at least from playstation 2 to playstation 3 era there was that not need as such but there was definitely more of an emphasis to have backwards compatibility but you're completely right when they moved from the 360 to the xbox one to the playstation 4 to even the switch there was definitely not as big an outcry from the studios themselves or the companies themselves to provide the service but you raise an interesting point there that there's lots of people who will demand this they'll say i want to play this game that i played from my childhood but in a world of billions of people not everybody's going to be a gamer of course but you know like millions (laughs) of gamers as a whole how is like a small handful of people going to influence that in the new generation of gaming yeah it's an interesting point you raise about technological advancement a lot of issues with backwards compatibility in the earlier generations were that they were such radically different technology from console to console so it would make backwards compatibility a huge problem but i think ever since the ps3 and xbox 360 generation i think the standard or you know the technological ability i guess of games has kind of i wouldn't say plateaued 
mode, but it's not nearly as big of a leap as it used to be. So I feel like it's more reasonable now to want backwards compatibility because of the similarities to previous consoles. Because really, a PS5, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot technologically behind the scenes that's different, but it's not like it's a whole new control scheme. It's not a whole new operating system that it's running on, or at least I don't think. I was going to say, what was it that Todd Howard said about Fallout 76? 10 times the processing power. Oh yes, 16 (laughs) times the detail. Games certainly get bigger, but I feel like they've stopped relying on all sorts of different types of technology now that everything's kind of moving towards a singularity of like using Unreal Engine or something. No, that is very true. Maybe it's just us getting older and sorry to out you there to say we're getting older instead of saying me and accepting (laughs) my mortality as it were. But it is an interesting point that gaming just doesn't seem as magical as it used to. I feel as if the older you get, the more you actually see behind the scenes of gaming and all the companies that are more targeting demographics for whether it's kids, whether it's, well, in the early 2000s with the Xbox, it used to be the dude bros and things like that. You see that a lot more evident when you get older and you see what they're saying and everything. And maybe kids obviously will view this differently when they grow up, but it is weird to think that there was so much innovation and going back to collecting there was a somewhat mysticism about it yeah the reason people fawned over someone having a sealed copy of banjo kazooie or golden eye or one of these games was because oh this was an amazing game it had that nostalgia around it it had that somewhat mysticism <laughs> which sounds so weird to say but you know it had the reputation it had the backing behind it yeah. i can't imagine that a lot of people are gonna gather around and have a copy of and i know it's digital but you know like have a copy of fortnite or something mm-hmm. in a plastic sleeve or something like that because yeah. that is something else that someone brought up as well the fact that with game collectors the physical copies as soon as we hit the xbox one i want to say generation like xbox one playstation 4 they stopped making the instruction manuals yeah that is sad yeah so it's like one less thing to include with the actual box with the presentation i mean the thing i was laughing at and this is something we i can't remember if we discussed this when we talked about sonic frontiers in our episode also great episode please go check it out but i remember you and i were talking about i think it was the special edition where you could get the steel book but everybody's steel books were too small or they were the wrong case or something if i remember correctly it was that if you pre-ordered the switch version of Sonic Frontiers, you would get a steelbook, but it was a steelbook for a disc copy when the Switch didn't use discs. It just felt very mismatched. Here's a question for you, though. And I know I'm I'm full (laughs) of questions tonight. Do you feel as if the presentation in terms of collecting has gone down the more the gaming landscape's advanced? As I was saying before, you would marvel if you saw the big box for the N64 game or the Game Boy game or even some of the games that they presented for the 360 era for the PlayStation for all of these games you would have a grand presentation personally I would say that probably happened around 2016 I want to say whenever the Xbox One came out but would you say that's the case from a collector's point of view oh man there's a lot I want to respond to obviously I'm biased of course I love physical copies I love the feeling of physical copies I love the fact that I'll be able to keep my physical copy as long 
long as I can. Like, of course, me saying a lot of the magic is taken away when it's just digital, I am slightly biased, but I do find that a lot of people from kind of my generation and older have a lot of nostalgia for extra parts of the video games. There are plenty of videos where you'll see people talking about how, yeah, I remember the car ride home, I was reading the back of the box, or like I opened it up and read the instruction manual, and kids don't have that nowadays because obviously you can just download the game right there. So to me, that magic is gone, but it's also something where if you never grew up with it, it's probably not all that magical, you know? That actually raises a very good point because, and this is definitely going to make me feel old, but you do know what Blockbuster is, don't you? Oh yeah, of course. Oh, thank God. <laughs> right, okay, you know, <laughs> just in case, because yeah, I was yeah. like, oh God, I'm about to go into Blockbuster territory. And again, for the youngins in the audience who don't know what that is, it was a physical Netflix. That's the way I always describe it. It's a physical yeah. Netflix. You had to get out into the cold. <laughs> you had to go and get a game or a film or whatever, and then bring it back. But I remember the blockbuster we used to have in this area had, it was like, obviously they didn't have the covers as it, well, they had the covers on the shelves, but when you gave them over, they gave you like a transparent blue one in return. Oh, yes. So they would give yeah. you that, and they would give you the disc, and they would give you the instruction manual, but that was it. They wouldn't give you the actual case. I'm assuming yeah. in case people, you know, rented it in the store or I don't know what the reason was, but yeah, they ended up doing that and I remember going home and do you know the game that actually sprung to mind when you said reading the manual? Of all what? things, it was Sonic Heroes for me. Really? Because I had no idea that Sonic Heroes was out. For some reason, I hadn't paid attention and then I was in Blockbuster, I saw Sonic Heroes, I thought oh my god, it's a new Sonic game and then I decided to ask either my mum or dad, whoever was there, I decided to ask them, could I rent it? They said, yeah, sure. And I spent the whole time in the car journey home just reading the manual, which ironically enough, it was also how I found out that Shadow hadn't been killed. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and the game, which is a whole other spoiler and discussion in itself. But yeah, I thought that was really, really interesting. Looking back on it, how there was that nostalgia, but you're completely right. If you're not really experiencing that nostalgia, kids nowadays and people going forward, they're not going to have these same experiences. They're not going to be in the back of cars playing with a Game Boy that had to be lit up by the <laughs> street lamps as you drove. Oh, by. yes. Oh, my God. Yes. And even when you did get, because I remember I had one of them, you know, the lights you plug into yeah. the side, and mm -hmm. it was a big glare. You couldn't mm -hmm. even see what was on the screen. It made it worse <laughs> somehow. But, you know, it's interesting in a, I suppose, a time capsule way in terms of, as you said, it's preserving gaming history, it's preserving those moments of what once was with gaming, and they're getting all sappy and nostalgic here, but <laughs> it's weird to think that nowadays we are moving away from that, as it were. Again, as a collector, how do you feel in terms of the way that the gaming landscape is inevitably evolving, but in terms of collection, how are you feeling about it? Well, obviously, it makes me sad that we're moving away from all sorts of things. I'm also a little confused at why people are so okay with it because to me if you were to go and say hey how about you pay the exact same price except you don't get anything physical and we can take it away from you whenever we feel like and people would just be okay with that is weird to me i feel as if it's a slow burn though because if you look at things like game pass which i'm guilty of i've mm. got game pass as well so i'm not gonna <laughs> sit here and cry like oh it's the worst thing ever no no it's a great service but on the flip side as you said on game 
Pass, you're basically renting these games. You're renting the opportunity to play these games and bar a certain few of them, well, for now, you're exclusives for that's a whole other debate, but with Halo, with Gears of War, you know, with all of those games, they're probably going to be on a lot longer and probably more permanently, but with other games, you know, they've got a shelf life because I remember I was talking to, I think it was Jess from the Opinionated Luscious podcast and we were talking about the game Firewatch and I remember I played it a while ago or rather I started it, never really picked it up and then I was talking about it and I said to her, oh, do you want to review this game? And she was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So I thought, okay, I've got to finish the game first. And then I realised when I looked up the Game Pass, it was like, oh, this is leaving soon. And I was like, oh. So I literally had two days to complete it before they took it away. And I think now it's back. But that's the thing, though. As you said, you're completely at the mercy of companies deciding when you can and can't yeah. play these games. If you've got a physical version, then you're a-okay. As you said, I feel as if it's the convenience yeah. of it. People are so okay, like especially with yeah. COVID and things. When the pandemic came, that was extenuating circumstances and everything. But the fact is, it's a lot easier just to click a button, get it downloaded, yeah. <laughs> beamed, quite literally beamed onto your console or your PC or whatever. And I feel as if that impacts that sense of physical yeah. collecting. It certainly has pushed companies to stop making physical copies, which is very sad for me because the availability of physical copies was a, a huge thing for me. There was something I, you talked about that I kind of want to touch on for a minute. You were saying how do you feel that gaming has lost a lot of magic as things have gone on? And I feel like it's a complicated answer because, you know, gaming is still relatively new as a concept concept. It's a recent art form. So in the early days, a lot of it didn't have any sort of best established practices. There were no classes you could take on it. You just did what you thought and that had its own charm. And that's what we grew up and got used to. But now that we live in an era where they do teach classes on it, there are best practices and there are a million people online who will criticize every little detail in your game. I'm not trying to say that it's bad, but it definitely makes games a lot more homogenized in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah, because I mean, last month there, my friend and I, Martin McAllister, we did our Pokemon month together where we were talking about the concept of, you know, Pokemon rumours, mm-hmm. Mew yes. under the truck, Bill's Garden, yeah. that kind of thing. And it was amazing how despite the internet not being as prevalent back then, that we were still in our kind of small social bubbles. Yeah, all of these rumours spread yeah. like wildfire all around the world. Everyone knew about Bill's Garden everyone knew about Mew under the truck and everything and you're right it feels as if nowadays with the internet being as connective as it is you know it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand you have a lot of people who are giving you more information than ever you can mm-hmm. find out how fast yep. the game runs you can find out someone testing the frame rate you can see this and that digital versus physical you can see all of these comparisons yet on the other hand they're is this huge discourse of people who try to emulate others and I'm saying that in the nicest way possible but they'll try to emulate others in the way that they critique things and the extent that you know they're not really saying anything substantial they're just adding fuel onto the fire essentially yeah. and you know it's not really productive but because it's encouraged by other people you know people saying why would you yeah. want physical media oh digital's the way to go you know I don't want to say 
say it's like groupthink, but you know, it's like that collectiveness of some people who are loud enough might say, oh, this is the way forward for gaming, and then other people might be slowly lulled into that. And I'm not saying digitally it's all bad, but as you said, you had a great point. It's quite worrying how people just kind of woke up one day and said, yeah, let's just accept the digital because it is more convenient. It's just here to stay, as it were. A big part of why I collect video games is that I find value in experiencing things as they were. Even if you liked a particular game and think there's a way better version of it remastered or whatever, I still think that there is a reason to play it as it originally was. I still think there's a lot that can be learned. So I like being able to pull it up and experience it as it was. And I feel like a lot of that's kind of going away. There's been a remaster and a remake of The Last of Us, you know? It's a game that came out on the PS3, but how many people play the PS3 version nowadays? So it's one of those things where I think it's worth playing the PS3 version because it is the game that essentially pushed PS3 over the edge to outsell the 360 in the end. And I think that's worth examining, but you wouldn't really get that same effect if you were playing the PS5 remake where they've optimized it and changed the graphics and all that. Yeah, because I mean, you can really apply it to any of the remasters or remakes because one of the ones that I'm just thinking with you and I that we constantly talk about is the Sonic Adventure series where when it moved from Sega's Dreamcast all the way to Nintendo's GameCube, there's a lot of people who seem to have issue with the ports and things but at the end of the day that is the only port you can actually get of that and that's the only one I've really played. I mean I played the Dreamcast one of the first one but I've not really played the second one as far as I'm aware. You know you hear people who have created mods and things and they've said I want to relive that same magic from it when played it versus the poor port that they've brought over and I mean going back to one of the games I mentioned earlier like with Mass Effect the definitive version I think a lot of people play nowadays myself included of course is the legendary edition which is like a compilation of all three it's been upscaled with graphics and things yeah and they redid like a lot of lighting and stuff but as you said is that better or worse aesthetically to an extent obviously it is better but at the same time you know you kind of look at it and you think is this going to become the definitive representation it's a thing I think games should do a lot more of but you know the Halo Master Chief collection they've got a mode at least for the first and second game where you can alternate between the anniversary edition or just the original edition and that is just such a damn great idea because you can either preserve what was or if you prefer the updated graphics which is perfectly fine you can switch on to that you can toggle it whenever but nowadays more and more games seem to be quite intent on trying to preserve the newest Mm. version if it's popular enough obviously for games like Mass Effect or insert any Nintendo game here or The Last of Us they're trying to preserve this golden version of the game whereas the old versions are I don't want to say dying out because they're still there but you know they're becoming more and more obscure because I think in a couple of years time people are going to go oh yeah The Last of Us that Playstation 4 game and you're like (laughs) no or even for Sonic Adventure people would say oh you mean the Gamecube game you'll rise from your grave about like 200 years in the future being like no no no. <laughs> this world, it's evil. <laughs> 
I agree with you that I think the game companies are trying to preserve the best version, but I, I also think that even if you do think it's just an objectively better version than the previous, I think the previous still existing is important because imagine if somebody were trying to make another game and they were trying to learn from you. Obviously, a remaster of a remake of, you know, an ancient game is going to have a lot more thought through ideas. Your example for Mass Effect, where like they upscaled it and did all these things. It's like, even if that's the case, it didn't start like that. And if you were making a new game trying to learn from it, you would be holding yourself to a somewhat unrealistic standard because it's like, well, it took, you know, a remaster and port or whatever to get to the point that it is now. That's a big reason why I will still buy the older, worst versions of games because I still think it's important to experience. Yeah, before we wrap up, I've got one final question for you because I know we've kind of been back and forth about positives and negatives, but what are some of the games that you want to shout out in your own collection? Like, what are some of the games you're proud of? To end on a positive, as it were. I was very thankful that a friend of mine gifted me a copy of Panzer Dragoon Saga for my birthday, so I am very, very thankful for that. I mean, I have a ton of games that I'm, I'm very glad to have, but I do own one game that basically just doesn't exist anymore. It is called Trials of Battle, and that game is probably one of the best examples why I think physical copies should be made, because you can basically find nothing about it online, and the only thing I found about it, aside from the developer's website that hadn't been updated since the 90s, the only thing I found was a guide to emulate it, but it was only the demo version, and the guy was like, the full version just isn't available anymore. It's one of those things where I'm glad to have a physical copy of it, because who knows what would happen to it if I didn't. I think those are the two biggest ones that come to mind. That is crazy though, isn't it? That people can spend all that time making a game, and you know, I I can't speak for whether that game's good or not. I'm about to defend this game, (laughs) and there'll be like the one fan listening to this episode going, what the hell, that game was terrible, but you're completely right, it's just how, and I was going to make another joke about it being a creepypasta, but I'll refrain, but yeah, it's just, it's crazy to think how people worked in that game, it exists physically, and then all of a sudden, as you said, because there's no demand for it, there's no interest. Yeah, it just basically doesn't exist anymore. You know what the back of the box says about it? Oh, do tell. It describes itself as a fusion of Mech Warrior and Quake. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that is dating. Which I think is hilarious. <laughs> it is a really good game, though. Seeing that note, Shadow, thank you so, so much for coming on and, yeah, sharing your passion for collecting. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on again. Thank you for letting me talk to you about game stuff that I feel like I don't generally get to talk about a, a whole lot, but thank you. And, yeah, before we wrap up, where can these lovely listeners at home and the one fan of that game, <laughs> where can they find your content? You can find my content on twitch.tv slash supershadow271. I have a supershadow271 YouTube channel and Twitter account. I'm refusing to calling it X. And uh, you can also find me on Instagram. But yeah, if you want to listen to more episodes by our lovely selves, or you just want to listen to more Chatsunami content, you can check us out at our website, chatsunami.com. I also want to thank our Pandalorian patrons at home, Robotic Battle Toaster and Sonia. Thank you so, so much for supporting the show. And if you want more exclusive content from ourselves, head on over to patreon.com forward slash chatsunami. But until next time, stay safe, stay awesome, and most importantly, stay happy. Hydrated.